Well, our assignment tonight is a very complex topic. So I was thinking this afternoon, wouldn't it be great if this was a grad school seminar and we're all sitting around one of those big boat tables and we had 90 minutes to think deep thoughts. 90 minutes. Then I woke up and the Vikings were on TV and the dog was <laughs> snoring and so much for that. So <clears throat> we've got 30 minutes about. So we're going to hit the high spots, and they aren't going to be just that, but we'll try to give you kind of a, a sense of uh, what's happening there, at least from my point of view, and I'm not always right, but it's my point of view, so there it is. Uh, I want to start with three or four kind of um, general introductory comments, things that many of you may know, but in case you don't, I want to make the observation. We've all watched courtroom dramas on TV from Perry Mason all the way up through the Law and Order series and whatnot, <clears throat> and somebody, inevitably, a witness, will say, uh, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and so help you God, they don't say so help you God anymore, and uh, in most states, but anyway, there is that. That phrase, that oath, goes back to like the 1200s in English common law, and it might go back all the way to the Romans, as most things in law do, but why do they do that? You say, uh, do you swear to tell the truth or affirm the truth? Yes. Well, then why do they come back and say, well, the whole truth? Well, because they recognize, and you probably did when you were raising your kids or when you were a kid talking to your mom, it's possible to tell the truth, but not the whole truth, and therefore misrepresent what happened. It's certainly possible to misrepresent what happened if you mix in falsehood, nothing but the truth, lies. And the reason I mention this is to say that the day is gone when Walter Cronkite would end his media coverage, his news of the day, and say, that's the way it is. And everybody believed him because it was. Because they didn't opine. Uh, they pretty much tried to get the facts and give them to you. And that was it. Media today is about advocacy. It's about political perspective. It's about bias. I think you know that, but I want to remind you that. I don't care what your favorite channel is. They all have a perspective and you get, rarely, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You get their angle. You get their narrative. And sometimes, of course, it's intentional to give you only a piece of what they're talking about. I'll give you one example. We've got to move beyond. But when the new uh, Speaker of the House is appointed, Mike Johnson, uh, he's uh, a believer, uh, I guess, and he, he was in, being interviewed somewhere, and he said something about he believed that God had appointed him uh, to this task, and everybody else in Congress in their positions. Well, later when that was reported on M, what was it, MSNBC, only the part that God had appointed him was presented to make it sound like he was some kind of theocratic right-wing nut, and uh, you know, they misrepresented. They didn't present the whole truth and nothing but the truth. They gave an angle, because that's what they wanted to say about the guy as he was coming in. That's just a reminder, and that is happening all over the place with the Israel-Hamas war. They don't even have a name for it yet. Here are all different kinds of names. So I just caution you that. The other thing is that uh, when an event like this takes place, we probably, if you're interested in all, you watch a lot more TV, kind of mainline it. I do, every time you turn it on, you're watching the latest news of developments. And it's awfully easy when you watch that many hours of coverage to, again, soak in or pick up their biases. And uh, we've done that recently with SAT7 when we had uh, a couple of Zooms where we talked to our constituency about what's going on, and we reminded them, hey, our biblical worldview should critique what we hear on the news, not the other way around. 
And that was Francis Schaeffer who had that great metaphor. He said that most of us, most people in the world, get their values by osmosis, kind of like a sponge. You just kind of suck them in, soak them up from your culture without uh, any kind of review. It may or may not be biblical attitudes or values unless you apply your Christian faith to that. So uh, I know you know that, but I wanted to remind us of that because this is a really sensitive topic as we get into this. And uh, as you watch the news, I try to flip around. I watch, you know, I watch Fox, I watch CNN, I watch BBC once in a while just to pick up different flavors of what's going on. I wanted to mention one or two other couple things, uh, one or two other things as we get started. Uh, Sat7 is the ministry I work with. That's uh, Satellite 7. That's Christian satellite television in the Middle East and North Africa. The focus of Sat7 is the Arab world in Arabic and the Persian world, Iranians in Farsi, and of course Turks, the Turkish world. None of those people like Israel. And most of them are Muslim that are watching Christian television. So Sat7 has to be really careful in how it handles and messages and reports on what's taking place here because, again, our audience is who they are. Now, we're not changing our perspective, facts, whatever. We're not changing our Christian perspective, but we have to be careful. So one of the things that we do is we rarely say Israel. We never say Israel on the air. We say Holy Land. And you see Holy Land on this slide. That's our phrase because that's acceptable across the board acceptable to Jewish people, it's acceptable to Christians, it's acceptable to Muslims uh, of all stripes, and uh, it refers then to all the parts of that land, of Israel, of the Gaza Strip, of the West Bank, of the Golan Heights, etc. So that's what I mean by Holy Land, I just wanted to throw that in. Now there's a lot of ways to look at this. As I said, I tried to kind of put on the slides uh, some highlights of what's taking place to try to explain, offer some perspective, at least my perspective, and also kind of keeps me on track and hopefully within that uh, 30 minutes that we're talking about. One of the things that you may have picked up if you watched any news at all is that virtually the whole world except the United States thinks Israel is wrong. And it's mounting, it's really mounting. We'll talk more about that as we move along. But I wanted to give you some feel for why that's the case. You know, one of these Jews versus Arabs goes back to Isaac and Ishmael Hope you can read that. Isaac and Ishmael, it really literally started back then. And I want to remind us that God didn't, God didn't reject Israel. He, he said to Hagar, I'm going to make your son a great nation. He protected Ishmael and he protected Hagar, even though he was born in awkward circumstances, or you could say sinful circumstances, the lack of faith on a part of Abraham and, and, uh, and Sarah. But it wasn't Hagar's fault and it certainly wasn't Ishmael's fault. But there is that beginning of what is a division and that great nation that is later there. Now, I noticed that I was reading scripture there that when Ishmael died and they listed all of his sons and where they settled into the area there uh, in the southern part of what today we call Israel over toward the Sinai in that area, there's, this, there's a phrase in scripture that says they were hostile to all their neighbors. I thought, that's interesting. Ishmael's sons, his first generation, were hostile to all their neighbors. And that kind of division has continued to this day. Certainly Satan has used it in every way possible and it's centuries old. That's why I like to say this is a, a complex topic. Every American politician since Harry Truman has tried to fix things, you know, and God bless them, Democrat or Republican, they've tried, but it has been fruitless eventually, impossible. It might've resulted for a while 
uh, in some peaceful circumstances, but inevitably it blew up again. That's what this is all about. 1937, you go back that far, 1937, well, let me go back further than that. Uh, the Palestinian area, the Israel area, was for centuries dominated by the Ottoman Turks. The Ottoman Turk Empire, the Ottoman Turk Empire finally fell apart after hundreds of years in the 1920s, right after World War I. But it was in the 18th century, 19th century, in the 1800s, that Jews began to go back to Israel. That was the first kind of return of the diaspora, where they were fleeing from anti-Semitism in Europe. They thought if we go back to our original homeland, maybe we can escape this kind of persecution and harassment. And they started to go back. And that's when a Zionist kind of movement began to start, which was the Zionist movement, just the idea of restoring Israel to its own, or restoring Jewish people to their own homeland, Zion, Israel, Israel, Zion. Uh, that continues to today. But that went on into the, after World War I, 1937, there was something called the Peel Commission, because the British had been assigned responsibility by the League of Nations for this uh, re, I don't know what you'd call it, not recaptured, but this area that had been released by the Ottoman Turks once they had fallen apart. Uh, that's called the British Mandate. The British kind of owned and operated and ran that area for a long period of time. But in that time period, the Arabs and the Jews began to fight. And finally, in 1937, that's why I mention it here, it's the first mention of the idea of a partitioning of that area in what was later called, they didn't use the phrase, but what was later called a two-state solution. So if you've heard of two-state solutions, it's the idea that there would be an Arab state and a Jewish state side by side in some configuration and they would live in peaceful coexistence. Wow, wouldn't that be great? Okay. All right. You have been hearing on the news, I'm sure you've heard it, I'm sure you've heard it even from uh, politicians and protesters, certainly, that sometimes that, you know, again, blaming Israel, saying that Israel has completely uh, lockstep rejected this. Hasn't had, that, is, that is a bold-faced misrepresentation of history. Because five separate times since 1937, five times, an actual two-state solution was on the table in negotiations. The Arab leaders were there. The Jewish leaders were there. Israel... Israel agreed, and the Arabs walked away from it. Now, when I say that, I'm not trying to knock, if you have Arabic heritage, I'm not trying to besmirch Arabs any more than I am Jews. I'm just talking about history here and what has happened. But they walked away from it five times. Five times there's not been a resolution of this thing called a two-state solution. And in those, most of those occasions, Israel was conceding territory to make it happen. Uh, so that's also a misrepresentation when you hear that Israel will not do that. So you go along in those dates. 1947, it was the United Nations. Now, us conservatives, that's me, <laughs> like to knock the United Nations. I don't think they're worth much. But nevertheless, 1947, after the Holocaust and after World War II, it was the United Nations that said, hey, we should have an Israel. We should have a two-state solution. It was, it was the United Nations who did that and put that forward. Not again Israel acolytes, not again the U.S., not again something anti-Arab. It was the United Nations who voted on that behalf. It didn't, it didn't move forward very fast, so in 1948, in May, once the British said, okay, we're done here, we're going home, and that British mandate, the very next day or that day, I forget which, Israel declared its independence as a nation-state and within hours, President Harry Truman was the first person, first nation to recognize Israel's status 
as a legitimate nation state in the world, 19, May 1948. That came out of the United Nations. They came out of a sense of remorse and a sense that we've got to do something following the Holocaust. The world had awakened in 1945, 6, 7, 8 to what had, they're beginning to understand, they still don't have their arms around it completely, what actually happened there when 6 million Jews were slaughtered in a true genocidal effort by Hitler's Nazis. So there it was. As soon as, as soon as Israel declared its nation statehood, independence 1948, within hours, five Arab nations declared war. Hours went to war. And Aram, the new nation of Israel, shocked the world by just whipping them quickly. It was the beginning of this view that Israel can't be defeated. Uh, and by 1949, in the armistice there, and this is, this, is, this is a source of one of the most difficult parts of this today, there's something took place that the Arab world calls the Nakba. It's an Arabic word that means catastrophe. And what they're referring to is that 700,000 plus Arab people who had lived in Palestine, who had lived in Israel for generations, were permanently dislodged, left, and went over into Gaza or down into Egypt or someplace else. They lost their homeland. They lost their property. They lost everything. Human beings, their families. So there is a reality there when they point to this, that, hey, something's been taken from us, right or wrong. But there it was. It's called the Nakba, 1949. You go to 1967, that was the Six-Day War. Again, literally six days. Uh, Arabs, de Arab nations declare war. Won't go into all details. Israel just whips them badly in six days. That's when we get the Gaza Strip. That's when it had happened. There's things before that. But that's when Israel began to, quote, unquote, occupy and uh, operate the Gaza Strip along with the West Bank that had belonged to Jordan. And then that same year, there was something called the Khartoum Resolutions. Khartoum down there in Sudan, the three no's. And the Arab leaders had met there in Khartoum and they voted no, uh, no um, let me get it straight here, uh, no negotiations with Israel, okay? No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel as a nation state. No, no, no. And we've operated with that ever since. There's no, there's been no, I mean, Hamas takes it to the next level where they declare in their charter the annihilation and extermination of the Jewish people, not just the demise of Israel as a nation state. Iran says the same thing. There was an Iranian leader who last week said, we will do October 7 over again and again and again. He said that publicly in declaring their attitude toward Israel. So this is 1967. 1973 was the Yom Kippur War. That's where the Sinai got involved. Eventually, uh, Egypt gave the Sinai back, or excuse me, Israel gave the Sinai back to Egypt in negotiations. Uh, and in 2005, 2005 is when Israel voluntarily left the Gaza Strip, took all their soldiers out of there and said, okay, it's yours. We're walking out. And in 2006 is when Hamas was elected. Now, you'll hear, I've heard it said many times, I've read it, that Israel has occupied Gaza for 50 years. They're dating it to the 1960s. 
Israel hasn't been in Gaza since 2005. They did occupy before out of a need for security or whatever else you want to say. But since 2005, it's been Hamas. And there are people in the Arab world who are asking questions like, okay, where'd all the money go that went in there from all these places that went into ammunition, that went into building tunnels? Uh, there, there are no um, bomb shelters for civilians in, in Gaza Strip. None. Why? Because they, Hamas put it into weaponry and into military. Uh, and all these things, and, and of course the issue right now with the hospital where they're surrounding the hospital and trying to get at uh, what they say is a, hum, a Hamas command center under the hospital, that's exactly what Hamas does, and they do use people as human shields. Uh, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, you've got two and a half million civilians who live in the Gaza Strip. I'll get to that here in a, in a different way. Uh, I've got to move along. Israel's called an illegitimate state. How? Why? I mean, it was voted by the United Nations. It was declared its independence. Um, if you can say it's illegitimate because it hasn't always been there, well, hey, we were born in 1776. We haven't always been here. Are we illegitimate? Well, let's have a debate historically. But it's that kind of thing going on. They're said to be an apartheid state. Now, apartheid, of course, is that Dutch word that came out of South Africa. Uh, and where they were truly apartheid, where blacks weren't allowed to vote, blacks weren't allowed to do a whole lot of things and restricted, and it was a two-class-level two, uh, society, racially divided, uh, Israel has never done that. Israel is one of the most diverse nations of the world in terms of the number of people that live there from all over the place who are now citizens in Israel, including Arabs. I know a guy who's an Arab Israeli. He has an Israeli passport, but he has an Arab heritage. He can cross the checkpoints as easily as I can with my U.S. passport. He's Arab. He grew up in the streets of Jerusalem. Um, so there's a mixture there of, of people. So some of these things that are thrown around uh, to smear Israel are, are just, are, you can't, if, you're, if you care about truth, you, you can't um, demonstrate it. They're called, these are new words, settler state or colonizer state. Those are, of course, the the new words we hear now with the whole woke kind of movement that somehow uh, you're not indigenous and you've gone in as an oppressor. Uh, you're, you've got more money, therefore you're the uh, oppressor. And then anybody who has less, they're the oppressed and you're a colonizer, you're a settler, therefore you're illegitimate. Uh, Israel's illegitimate, U.S. is illegitimate. And by the way, what we now call the left or progressives in the United States, they're not liberals, they're, they're farther over there. Liberals, old line liberals, Old-line liberals like FDR and JFK and, and actually uh, Mr. Biden, uh, even though he's governed way to the left. Uh, but he's an old-line liberal. That's one of the reasons he's standing firm so far with Israel. But the young Democrats who are progressives, and you've followed some of them, they're not liberal, they're leftists. They have a totally different view. They're, they don't believe in God. They don't believe in truth. They don't believe in the United States. They think the United States itself is illegitimate. That's what's being taught in our schools. Uh, and that we're a settler state, that we are a colonizer, we're the oppressor. It's Marxist is what it is. And that's the kind of stuff being taught in our schools all the way up to the universities have been now for 20 years, and that's why you're seeing some of this in the streets. You think, where do these ideas come from? They're taught in our schools. That's where they came from. So these things are, are causing uh, trouble. Uh, occupied territory, of course, uh, Gaza is called occupied territory. 
Uh, depends on how you define occupation again. Did they occupy for a period of time? Yes. Did they do it because they had security issues and safety issues? Yes. Has that been rejected by those who didn't like it? Yes. Uh, and then they're saying it was been for 50 years. It hasn't been for 50 years. The only reason there's been a, Ga a Gaza blockade is because people in Gaza, Hamas, was shooting stuff at Israel and they had the blockade. Does that have a humanitarian impact? Yes, it does. And back to that before I forget, with the 2.4 million people who live in Gaza, about 47% of them are under the age of 17. So if you do the math, 17 years, 2006, how long ago was that? Almost half the population have been born since Hamas took over. Kids, kids. And if almost half the population are kids, if there's a bomb drops, what are the odds that a kid's gonna get hit? Pretty, pretty heavily, especially if they've been put out there and made vulnerable in some way, and that has happened. So it's extremely difficult when you think about how do you protect civilians and how do you get at these guys, Hamas, when they are literally and purposefully moving around amongst civilians and trying to protect themselves in that way. But Hamas, uh, Israel is called an occupier and said to occupy territory, including in the West Bank. There's the West Bank barrier wall was put up. People don't like that. I've seen that wall. Uh, it's about 30 feet high, which means it's twice as high as the old Berlin Wall was back in the day. Uh, it's five times as long as the old Berlin Wall. They say, I don't like walls, but why did they put that up? To protect themselves from snipers who were shooting from the West Bank over into Israel. And since that West Bank barrier wall has gone up, the number of sniper deaths has gone down dramatically. It's worked. It really has worked. But it's awful to walk, to drive around, and everywhere you look at this massive wall separating one people from another who can't live to, you know, together near, nearby. Uh, so they're disliked for that reason, too. Has Israel allowed settlements in the West Bank? Yes, it has. And there are international, there are international agencies like the UN and others who consider that a violation of international law. And then, therefore, again, Israel is accused of misrepresenting doing what it's doing. Uh, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. By the way, Israel's about the size of New Jersey, okay? About the size of New Jersey. Uh, West Bank, about the size of Delaware, a little piece there. Uh, it's not, not a big area. Gaza Strip is 25 miles long. It's 25 miles long and about between three and a half and seven miles wide. That's it. It's an extremely small area to have that many people packed into it. So, but as the only democracy, it's despised also because it represents um, liberty and uh, free enterprise uh, and other values that the uh, Arab world or the Muslim world considers inappropriate and they don't want to have anything to do with. And of course, there's Hezbollah in the north and Iran as, as a backer of all these things that continues to kind of continue to stir things up. Now, this next slide, I got to get to this. This is the one I really want to spend time on. Um, the moral considerations. Does Israel have a right to self-defense? Uh, most of our political leaders, Republican and Democrat, have said yes, except for those ones on the left, the young ones that I've referred to, and the few like, like Rashida Tlaib from over here in Dearborn who was censored recently for the anti-Semitic things that she has said. Uh, and you can go back to just war theory. It goes all the way back to St. Augustine. In just war theory, there's two principles, several principles, but two that are really applicable. One called distinction, where you try not to kill non-combatants. You don't intentionally kill non-combatants. 
American soldiers going into Germany didn't try intentionally to kill non-combatants. On the other hand, the Allies did drop bombs on cities and killed non-combatants. There's a war. And that's what's happening now. As some of these bombs hit, there is the, you had to say collateral damage, because that seems diminishing to a human being, but there's human collateral damage that takes place, and that was what, is what Hamas wanted. Uh, that's why Israel is being uh, smeared all over the place uh, by the national media. Uh, and then the idea of proportionality. Well, I mean, what's a proportional response to what took place on October 7th? What's a proportionate response to 9-11? I mean, it, it's a judgment call of what you think is proportionate. You say, well, there's 1,400 Israelis killed and 250 hostages. And by the way, hardly anybody talks about hostages. They're just forgotten in the media. Um, and now we've killed 10,000 Gazans. Yeah. Remember William Tecumseh Sherman in the Civil War? And his phrase that we've never forgotten, that war is hell. Yeah, it's hell, it's hellish. And now the, the conversations about all of this and the accusations against Israel that what they're doing is they're doing something called the collective punishment. They're blaming all of the Palestinians for what Hamas did. Now, I, don't, I personally don't think Israel's doing that. There may be some Israelis that do that, but I don't think that's their national policy. I think they're trying to get the Hamas. And there's about 40,000 of them, they think. Um, and how do you get to them? By the way, the leaders of Hamas do not live in Gaza. They live in Doha, Qatar, in five-star luxury hotels. Okay? Wealthy. Isn't that interesting? They're not there. Uh, but they're calling the shots, literally, on this kind of thing. And then there are these children that get caught in the middle of this. There's a lot of concern and moral consideration, again, if this continues and more children are killed, uh, not only do you worry about individual children who are created in, in the image of God and loved by God, they're, they're Palestinian, but he loves them too, uh, will eradicating Hamas, <clears throat> if Israel is even successful in doing that, if they pull that off, are they doing it and in the process simply hardening the next generation against any kind of sense of, of peace or any kind of desire to interact with uh, Israel on a, on a peaceful level? Or, or are they going to go into extremism? It's very, very difficult. That street-level PR, that's all the demonstrations you're seeing internationally. Uh, there was a demonstration in London uh, yesterday that was bigger than the one a week ago, and the one a week ago was said to be 100,000 people. And this one's a pro-Palestinian. Now, I don't have a problem with pro-Palestinian. If you want to talk to me about caring about people, about human lives, about being proportionate and having distinction and trying to save lives, yeah, yeah. But if you're going to be pro-Hamas, and some of these demonstrations, increasingly numbers of them on U.S. Uh, university campuses, starting with Harvard, are pro-Hamas. And the, and the thing that I, the, the thing, the image that I find the most disturbing of anything I've seen, I've read it in several places, but I've seen it twice, uh, and it both happened to be young women, college, university students, and they're on video, and they're tearing down pictures of the hostages. They're tearing them down and widening them up, they're tearing down pictures of the hostages. And one was challenged and kind of pushed back on it and got very belligerent. 
I think, what does she think as 19-year-old there that she's doing? Turn down, if you can't care about the hostages, you could have all these other political views if you want, but the hostages are, are really innocent. Now we don't care about them either. Why? Because they're Jewish, apparently. And then the anti-Semitism that we've heard uh, in the United States, is, I found rather shocking. Um, Israel, Israel, you can't hide. We want Jewish genocide. That was chanted on the UCLA campus a week ago. Okay? In Australia, there's uh, uh, demonstrations. They were chanting, gas the Jews. Gas the Jews. Is that ring any bells? Do they know what they're saying? Uh, the irony of some of this is the groups that are most involved in the pro-Hamas kind of demonstrations and also now getting increasingly violent and harassing, even attacking Jewish students going to the dining hall at Cornell or wherever they are, Tulane University. Tulane University in New Orleans is 47% Jewish population in the student body, and even there there's been anti-Semitic things take place on campus. What is this? And, and talk about collective responsibility. You're going to hold Israel accountable, and you're going to blame them and say, look, you, you can't do this, you can't go after Gaza because you're holding all these people accountable. And then they turn around and blame an American Jewish kid who had nothing to do with what's going on in the Holy Land. What does she have to do with it? Nothing. She's just Jewish. We've crossed the line. Now we're into racial hatred. And these are the groups that for the last 10 years have been preaching political correctness and all of the inclusive stuff that we've been hearing uh, at us. And they're out there doing this. I just, I, I, what, what has gone through? How could a 19, 20-year-old young woman on an elite university campus in the United States think that she was doing the right thing by tearing down pictures of the hostages? I don't get it. I just, I mean, I do get it, but I find it extremely disturbing. Um, calls for immediate cessation of violence. That one's hard. You've heard that. Um, my illustration with that is this, and our time's getting away, is um, God forbid, but if we had a gunman over here at Middleville at the high school walking through killing kids, and that's happened, as you know, in the United States how many times? Would your first desire and would your first call be to, uh, for a ses immediate cessation of violence? Think about it. Or would you be saying, look, I want the police to go in there and stop that perpetrator in any way appropriately and necessary, including if they have to kill the guy? Why? Because you'd want security and safety for those children as quickly as you could get it. In fact, when that didn't happen in Uvalde, Texas, it was a scandal. And I think rightly so. So calls for immediate cessation of violence, to me, sound good, but they've got to have more to it than that. Uh, you know, and this humanitarian pause. Now the humanitarian pauses have gone from four hours to three days. That's the latest I've heard, arguing for three days. What's Hamas going to do during three days of humanitarian pause? How do you fight a war with both hands tied behind your back? Remember what Sherman said? <laughs> William Tecumseh. It's awful. It doesn't mean you want to see people die, but this is the situation we're in. And uh, when you hear sometimes that, I um, heard this one too, Violence always results in more violence. Sounds good. 
But if the violence is taking place by the bad guy, and the good guy has to step in with a gun or whatever is necessary, violence, to stop the bad guy in some legitimate way, then you don't have more violence. That's the only way you're going to have peace. And I don't, I don't know what people are thinking when they say these things, uh, call for peace or call for immediate cessation. Do they think Hamas is reasonable? Do they think they can sit down with Hamas over tea and Hamas will say, oops, we didn't, oh, oh, we didn't mean to do that. We won't do that again. I don't, I think there's a level, Pastor, I think it's already back to theology and an attitude and an understanding about the depravity of human being, human heart. And the perspective that if you, this idealistic view that somehow people basically are good down in there somewhere, even Hamas, uh, that if we just reason with them, it'll all work out. Uh, to me, it's incredibly naive. And as you hear about calls for peace, at any cost, really, um, or immediate cessation. And when I say that, I'm not for more violence. I'm not for more killing. I'm not for more war. Uh, but some of the logic we're hearing is pretty warped. We've already talked about the genocide and, and the demonstrators that are out there, the anti-Semitic kind of things that are going on. And then there's, there's no win, no end. That this situation is, what happens when this is over? And there will become a time when it's over. And you're going to have this 25 by 7 mile area that has just blown the smithereens, at least the northern part of it. Nobody can live there. And you still got 2 million plus people that the Arab world, by the way, does not want and will not let them come in. And holding them there just as much or more than anybody in the West is doing. So what do you do with that? Remember in the end of World War II, somebody walked into Mr. Truman after the, was ha after the war was over and after the atom bomb was dropped in Japan and whatnot, and said, Mr. Truman, there are, there are an estimated 20 million people in Europe who are homeless and who have no food and who are just living on the edge, 20 million. And what are we going to do about that? Oh, we won the war. You don't have to worry about it. No, we, if you don't do something about that, it's going to get worse somehow, something, because those people are going to be desperate. They're going to do, so we developed something called, what, the Marshall Plan. And he asked Her Herbert Hoover to come back out of, uh, you know, his, he was gone for, out of politics for a while because he's blamed for the Depression. He came back and ran the Marshall Plan extremely effectively, and we sent tons of corn and, and wheat and others. American farmer put Europe back on its feet in the most gracious act of reconciliation that you ever want to find, uh, including Germans, German citizens, you know, who weren't Nazis and who were victims. And the Palestinians are victims. They're victims of Hamas, and they're victims of evil. And, and Israel uh, is, a, this, these are just Bible verses. We don't have time to go through all those. But just the perspective, I just wanted to say one thing. Israel, Israel is a nation state, state the obvious, a modern nation state. The Jewish people are a people. So in the scripture, when it says the Jewish people are chosen of God, they're God's chosen people, they're, they have a special place in God's economy and plan, they have a special place in the end times. I believe all that because I believe the Bible, okay? But I don't think, and this has been said, 
that if you critique or criticize or some say, say, wait a minute, Israel, I don't think you should do that. Somehow that's anti-Semitic. No, I think it's entirely possible to critique or question a decision that a nation state might make without it being anti-Jew or anti-Semitic. And I'll put it this way, I'm an American. I'm red, white, and blue. I love my country. I'm glad to be born here, okay? And raised here, glad to live here. But I don't think my country has always done everything right, okay? Much less do I think its, rule, its leaders have always done everything right, any more than I have, okay? So you have to have some kind of ability to critique while you love that country and respect it. And I think there's a difference between Israel and nation state. So uh, the bombardment and all of that uh, with Gaza, I don't know if that's the right way to go after Hamas. It sure bothers me because there are civilians being killed. And there are children being killed. And there are Christians over there in the middle of all that. Not that we care only for them, but they're there. And God's using them. There's a group of Ukrainian Jewish Christians. Say that three times fast. They, they left Ukraine to get away from what was going on in Ukraine. They went back to their homeland. They're living along the Gaza border. And then this happened. Okay? Those Ukrainian Jewish Christians are now extremely active in helping Jewish Israeli families, Israeli families who had suffered loss in what happened on October 7th. They're letting God's light shine through the darkness. So there is ministry in the middle of all that. And I, I look at all this, and we don't, again, I'm trying to go deeper and quit. Um, where's God in all this? He's right there. Do I know what he's doing? No. Uh, I know he's in charge. I know he's not surprised. That's what his verses are about. Uh, I know that he can turn evil to good. I know that when ISIS was at its peak and it was at its worst, by the way, ISIS isn't bad as Hamas in terms of what we know about them. But ISIS was killed more Muslim people than they killed Christians. And the Muslim world and the Arab world saw that and understood it. We've heard about it through Sat 7. And they began to say, what is this? This group of these Muslims killing other Muslims in the name of our God. It made no sense. And it caused them to begin to ask existential questions, to ask spiritually motivated depth questions like this. Is there something else? Is there truth other than this? And God does use adversity in our own lives and even something as terrible as this to drive people back to him. And I think that's happening now. Do I think I know exactly how and why? No. That's why I would say that if you're going to get in scripture and, and, and we may be part of the end times right now. I don't know. But just be careful jumping from the pages of scripture and then saying, ah, look, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> I know some preachers uh, do that and I've read that in articles already, but that's uh, a little, it gets really, uh, uh, you can't defend it. And so you have to be careful with that. But I think God's in charge. And that he's going to bring people back to him and he'll take care of the Jewish people even in the midst of this. So for Sat7, it's, it's been a very uh, challenging time. Uh, even when these are just testimonies. Uh, challenging time of how do you message? Again, we're speaking into the Arab world. So we can't go into the, our, our speaking and say, hey, pray for, pray for Israel. 
Pray for Israel to win. Uh, no. You say, why wouldn't you say that? Well, because the audience is Arab Muslims, and we want them to come to Christ, so we have to kind of connect with them. So we say, pray for peace in the Holy Land. Pray for the Palestinians. Yeah, why not? Pray for all human life, and pray that God would be glorified, and pray that his light would shine in the darkness. And that's the phrase that we've been using, light in the darkness, uh, to try to communicate and, and see how God might respond. Well, we've got to pull the plug. Uh, let me pray, and we'll wrap it up. Father God, we thank you. Uh, we have an opportunity to think about some of these things. We don't have all the answers, and we may not have any of the answers, but we know you do, and we know scripture is there, that we rely on it. And uh, it's like David of old, uh, when it seemed like uh, the world was upside down around him. Uh, he acknowledged it, and he would go back and rehearse your presence, your providence, your promises, uh, and he'd be renewed in his strength to go on. And we pray that that's the case with us too and that we would be actually optimistic knowing that we know you and that you will take care of these things and teach us too. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.